All right, welcome to the Atheist Experience. We are evidently live. It is uh, Sunday, June 5th, 2016. Our little monitor in the studio has, has gone black, but uh, we don't need that to be able to yeah. take calls and interact. I'm your host, Matt Delaney. Joining me this week, Jen Peoples. Yay! Hey, how and a whole are bunch you? of people. I was actually surprised yeah. out there. Uh, they, they can't hear you clap. There's like a glass wall between us, but they were clapping, yeah. so that's always a good thing. Yeah, it's pretty cool. How have you been? Hey, not bad. We, uh, we completely, like... Preempted you and kicked you to the curb a couple <laughs> weeks ago. Uh, the scheduling uh, conflict, but we had uh, Dan Barker and Annie Lord Gaylor right. here, yes. um, and uh, they spoke at the Reason Rally yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, I wasn't at the Reason Rally. Uh, it's now over, and uh, we may have a report coming in a little later from someone who was uh, there, who's a friend of mine, uh, to tell us a little bit about what went on and their thoughts on the event. Um, but we are live. This show is sponsored by the Atheist Community of Austin, a nonprofit educational organization promoting positive atheism and the separation of church and state. And after this show is over, some of the folks involved get together and go to Threadgills. It's a restaurant that's like three lights down that way. Take a left and go through a light, and it'll be on your left. Uh, but also the address will appear probably on the screen at some point as well. The screen that we can't see because yeah. we're it talking in the there. blind here. If it was on the screen, it would be like yeah. right here, over to here. And we'll see if I actually got that right or yeah. not later. Uh, so it's a live call-in show, and we have conversations, hopefully, with uh, theists or perhaps people that we have some other disagreement with, uh, asking what you believe and why, ha- hopefully encouraging conversations. Yesterday, I was fortunate enough to be invited onto a, a Christian apologetics academy Um Jonathan McClatchy, who's in the UK, and a number of other people who I know, including uh, Blake Junta, who I've debated twice, uh, and I'll be debating him again in August on the resurrection, uh, were there. And it was an opportunity to, you know, tell a little bit about my backstory, but mostly take questions from almost entirely uh, theistic apologists um, or people hoping to become apologists. And uh, I recorded it, and if the recording came out okay, I'll have that up on my Atheist Debates project, and it'll be on my YouTube, so you can check that out. Um, what have you got going on? Well, I got a couple things to talk about today. Sweet. Yeah. So we're going to talk a little bit about uh, talking to kids about death and dying, mm-hmm. uh, something that comes up frequently. Uh, but before we get to that, I have a little um, news item from the history books I want to uh, pass out today. Um, on this date in 1981, the CDC published the first case report of what would later become known as AIDS. Wow. 35 years ago. Uh, the report involved five young gay men with pneumocystis pneumonia who presented for treatment um, at three different L.A. area hospitals. And these were previously healthy young men um, for the most part. Um, two of the three had died by the time the report was published. And, of course, not much was known about this. It was just uh, sort of an anomaly, and the big thing was they, they had pneumocystis pneumonia and CMV infections. And these are so unusual because, oh, and also uh, um, basically yeast infections. Mm -hmm. And this was um, kind of the hallmark of somebody that had some kind of impaired immune function, but no one knew at that point what they were dealing with. But, yep, 35 years ago today was the first case report. That is 35 years ago. Man, I'm getting old. I know. (laughs) The nice thing about this is that, you know, 35 years, and I remember... um, I was a teenager around this time this, this started happening, uh, and it was terrifying. 
Yeah. In the sense that you know it was it was the plague and it was the gay plague and all these other uh, you know there was some fear mongering because this was uh, completely unknown and then there was also a lot of uh, hatred. Right. Yeah. And uh, and bigotry pointed at you know oh this is God's justice on the mm-hmm. Union thing. The nice thing is is that you know thirty five years later while we have not uh, cured this at all. We do now have treatments that allow people to live exceptionally long and perhaps normal lives. Um, and one of the big fears was that if your partner uh, had HIV, you were going to get it. Right, yeah. And now we have you know, prophylactic-type treatments and in cocktails that make that far less likely. Right. So that you know, committed couples where one person might be infected uh, is not necessarily constantly putting... Uh, their partner at a great risk. Um, right. So, and, and you'll see this actually, Beth and I liked it because we watched um, How to Get Away with Murder, and one of the characters there uh, contracts HIV, and then they talk about, you know, the waiting period and the prophylactic cocktail that his partner has to go through. So you're seeing it more on television. Um, yeah. I, I, I like how much better things are in many ways uh, than they were 35 years ago for sure and 100 years ago. But we got a long ways to go on some issues. Yeah, well, I remember, um, yeah, the the ministers of the day talking about this is God's wrath. It's God's judgment on people for being gay. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, people who were dependent on blood products started showing signs. And, you know, and then, you know, it, it became known that this is a bloodborne disease. It's transmitted through, you know, exchanging body fluids of various types. And... People were freaking out, you know, can my kid get it from casual contact with somebody who's infected or something like that. And, you know, there's all kinds of myths. I remember being in Germany uh, when they start, when the Army started the first round of testing. And um, in that first round of testing in Germany, one of my warrant officers came down positive. Um, and he already knew that he was going to be positive. And... Um, he was gay. Um, he says he believed that he he had contracted it when he was a young enlisted soldier, had been in Germany before, um, and was doing what young men do. He was dating a lot of people. And at the time, it, nobody knew very much about um, how it was transmitted. And, you know, there's this feeling when you're young that you're pretty bulletproof anyway. Mm-hmm. And so it was just never a thought that he was going to catch something like this. And he was uh, already having some symptoms of what later became known as the AIDS-related complex. You know, so uh, he he actually was medevaced from Germany because uh, it was a big political thing. So the Army didn't want people to know in the community um, you know, how many service members had, had come up positive and mm-hmm. who they were in particular. So um, in, in his case, um, the battalion commander knew. Um, he told me, um, because I had to basically write his final efficiency report and, you know, help him um, basically get ready to leave Germany. And uh, we actually didn't tell his company commander because uh, the belief was that the company commander would, like, tell other people. So, Well, then he would have been processed out because, I mean, this was... Well, um, not for being gay, uh, because officially we didn't officially know he was gay. <clears throat> so, um, which is handy. Yeah. Um, so you know, don't ask, don't tell was not a new thing. That was actually the de facto policy in the army before right. it was enacted. 
you know, as yeah, they, they had to know to be able to do something, and then yeah. they made don't ask, don't tell an official policy, which would just made it worse. Yeah, and now it's gone, so that if there are service people who come down with something uh, HIV/AIDS-related, uh, they're not only n not being processed out now; they can actually get medical treatment right. and continue to serve and, and live productive lives and continue to uh, be active. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, we've we've come a long way, and, and um, part of it was that I mean, like I said, he had to be medevaced. Um, so the official story was he was going back um, to fill a last-minute opening at the advanced course at Fort Rucker. In reality, he was headed back to Walter Reed. So, anyway. So um, you wanted to talk about talking to kids about death and dying. Yes, I did. So We um, need to get better at this in talking to everybody, but oh, kids Yes, in kids in particular. Um, so a woman wrote to us um, on the TV list to tell about, um, to ask basically how to talk to her young child about the death of the family dog. And so I'm just going to um, read to you some excerpts from her email to us. And again, if you guys write to us at the show, we um, don't give out names. So I'm not going to give out any names or identifying information. But basically, this woman writes to us and says that um, the family dog was bitten by a rattlesnake. Um, and, and basically, um, sometimes the treatment for dogs is not very effective, and this dog was suffering a lot. Um, and so they decided to have him euthanized. Um, the, the woman has a three-and-a-half-year-old daughter um, who really loved her dog. And she, they told her that they took him to the vet who helped him go to sleep. And she didn't understand that he wasn't coming home, and so this woman's asking you know, how do we tell her about death and the fact that, that the dog is dead and he's not coming back? Um, and she further talks about, um, and I'll just read this part of you. She says, I was raised as an evangelical Christian, and heaven was a standard comfort food served up to ease the pain of loss. But I have no interest in perpetuating that myth to my kids. Although my parents know this, I heard my mom, who came over to watch the kids while we went to the vet, telling my daughter that the dog was in a better place and chasing bunnies with Jesus. Um, she further writes that I guess dog heaven is also bunny hell, but maybe I'm reading too much into that. <laughs> maybe they just never catch them. Maybe yeah. the bunnies enjoy the exercise. Yeah. Leave little bunny pellets as they, for their. Yeah. Well, they still experience the existential terror of being chased by the dog. I don't know. So my question is twofold. Do you have any recommendations for explaining death to children without leaning on the crutch of an afterlife? And do you think that vague, nonspecific talk of heaven coming from family members? is something we should push back against. Um, I'm worried that giving an inch on this will lead to my mom trying to take a mile. Um, so anyway, that's uh, that's the essence of the, the question. So um, basically, uh, let me start by kind of relating a personal story here. So we recently had to have one of our cats euthanized. Um, Katie was her name. Um, she had salivary gland cancer, which is a particularly aggressive and not very treatable form of cancer. Um, and in her case, the, uh, the tumor that she had was growing visibly larger over the span of just, um, you know, a week. Um, so uh, we made the decision to euthanize her um, within hours of confirming the diagnosis. So um, while we were expecting the worst, it wasn't like we had a lot of time to consider our decision. Um, and part of that is when an animal's suffering, it's really important to act fast. Um, so we did. And, you know, we had to prepare our son for this because he's very attached to all of our pets. Um, and so, you know, 
we want to minimize our pet suffering, but we also want to minimize the emotional trauma um, that our children experience uh, when they lose someone they love, whether that's a pet or another you know, human. And we often go to great lengths to do this, so much so that we inadvertently make death scarier than it needs to be. Um, in terms of the concept of heaven or some kind of afterlife, I've never found that to be particularly helpful when people are dealing with death. death. And even my deeply religious family members um, don't seem to be very comforted by it. Um, I think part of that is that it doesn't really address the problem, which is that we miss our dead loved ones. Um, and they're gone. We can't interact with them anymore. Um, that loss is real, and believing that they're in some wonderful afterlife doesn't actually help us deal with that. Yeah, there's only, there's only the hope that maybe someday we might reconnect. Uh, right. Yeah. It doesn't tell us anything. Matter of fact, it, it sort of diminishes and devalues this entire life. Everything about an afterlife right. does. That you know, uh, this was a place to wipe your feet before you get to the to the real. Yeah, life. it's a dress rehearsal for the real thing. You know, so you waste waste all your time. But I think the pain of losing a loved one, one whether it's human or non-human, is just a part of life and Masking that pain and grief by pretending the loved one's in a better place is not a healthy response. Um, you know, acknowledging the loss, uh, letting our children experience the pain, and then grieving with them are better ways of dealing with the death of our loved ones. So in the case of our cat, Katie, um, when we were explaining to our son that you know she uh, was basically dying and that we could help her do that easier, um, he, he said that he wanted to be there when she died. And we've had other pets that we've had to have euthanized or who've died, and we've not allowed him to be present before. And, and I think in hindsight that was a mistake. Um, so he got to go with us, and the vet talked to him, kind of man-to-man, you know, explained to him uh, what was happening with Katie and why we needed to help her now. And so he was at peace with the decision um, when we... Um, when it came time to euthanize her, and the cat died in his arms. Um, and so, <clears throat> a little emotional on that here. Um, he saw that for what it was. Um, it was uh, quick and painless, and it's very sad, but not scary. So, <clears throat> again, like I said, I'm a little emotional about that because this is something that happened and got to watch my kid you know, experience that. It's tough to see your kid in pain like that. Um, my former roommate, mm-hmm. who's my age, um, made an emergency trip back from, I think, San Francisco this week, and I happened to call him, and it was because one of his cats uh, had had trouble breathing. They'd taken it to the vet, and it was, uh, there were one of two possible diagnoses, and he's he was pretty sure that she wasn't going to make it through the weekend, um, and and she didn't. She didn't even make it, you know, 12 hours or so. Um, and he let me know afterwards uh, that he was looking for, he did a debate on how to actually dispose of her remains, whether it's going to be cremated or whether he's going to come over and bury her in our backyard because he doesn't have a backyard. Um, and even this big, burly, you know, mm-hmm. um, military-ish, endurance athlete type oh he was uh, he was distraught and I, I felt for him and of course Beth who loves cats was yeah. was very upset and t- had told him he had to come over and get a hug because he mm-hmm. lost a kitty um, and it's you know one of the things I, 
I think there's a lot of negativity, and this doesn't necessarily come from religion, just from society, about mm-hmm. anyone showing their emotions. If men show their emotions, well, they're too womanly. They're, they're right. too, you know, oh, you, you cry like a girl or a sissy or whatever you want to do. Um, and this has done massive amounts of harm, the, the kind of machismo thing of right. this is the role you have to fill. And it gets right back to the to the gender stereotypes that we have and what we expect out of people. And it's... Uh, I can't. I can't even begin to imagine how much harm it's doing. Now, I, I'm not somebody who cries very often. I've been to funerals, and, and I just don't. And I don't mm-hmm. know if it's because of, you know, indoctrination of don't let your emotions out, or maybe I just don't experience things as, as strongly as some other people do. Um, but I'm more likely to be moved to tears by, you know, a great performance of some music or you mm-hmm. know something like that, uh, than I am by the loss of something. So people are going to deal with loss in different ways. Um, and I don't know if you had resources that you were going to give out. I know Greta Christina wrote a book. Yeah, Greta Christina wrote a book. Um, there's the Grief Beyond Belief group. Grief Beyond Belief is That's a secular a organization that deals support with group. Yeah. loss. Yeah. Also, I found yeah. out, um, Greta's book, by the way, is called Comforting Thoughts About Death That Have Nothing to Do With God. But if you go to Amazon.com, you can actually do a quick search. And I found this by accident just as we were talking about this. And it will pull up a list of secular picture books for children on death and dying. Um, I can't obviously vouch for all of them as I, I haven't looked at the pictures or, or read them. Yeah. Um, but the, the, the default position that we need to protect people from, and children especially, from death is something that I don't think I buy. Yeah. I think that by, by making fanciful stories about what happens after death, we mythify it. Mm-hmm. And by making it seem overly ominous and, and something separate, uh, that we do a disservice. Instead, I think if we taught people that death is the seemingly inevitable result of being alive and that it's going to happen to all of us at some point and that this is sad and that it is okay to, to feel sad, you are feeling sad because you've actually lost something. You've lost the ability to right. continue interacting with the, your pet or your family member. Um, that by the time it gets to the point where that, that individual, human or otherwise, um, dies, you've had a much healthier view of this such that it may not be as impactful. It will always be impactful, but not necessarily uh, negatively and crippling. Yeah, I think that, especially in the case of kids, what they imagine about death is often much worse than reality. Especially when it comes to, um, you know, a pet dying. Um, and I've seen this in my, res- my son's response to Katie's death um, as opposed to the death of some of our other pets. Mm-hmm. So um, the, the cat that we had that died um, several years ago, um, Griffin, uh, we, we didn't allow our son to go with us um, when we had Griffin euthanized. And it was another situation where um, he had a condition that was not treatable. Um, and he was desperately hungry and unable to eat. Um, and so I, I will not allow a cat to starve to death in my house, you know. So um, we had him euthanized, and uh, we didn't allow our son to, to attend that. And I think he was much more traumatized by that because he didn't know what happened to Griffin. Yeah, there's no, there's no closure. There's no understanding. It's just one minute he's here and the next not. Right. But in the case of Katie, he got to see the whole process. He got to understand, and he was he participated in the decision. 
you know, to do what was right for her. Um, and I know that, you know, he's a little older now, so maybe some of this is a function of that. Could be. Um, but, you know, I think he's just handling it so much better, and I think a lot of that has to do with it. We've very much demystified the whole process, and we've made it, you know, not scary anymore. I think one of the bad things, you know, we talk about is social pressures about from, from culture about showing emotions, and it's going to be different in different cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, the one thing that religion has done with death that I find just absolutely awful is it has, rather than recognizing that death is an end um, and going with the quote that's attributed to Mark Twain of being dead for a billion years before I was born and it never bothered me, so that you would view um, the end of your life in much the same way or what happens after the end of your life in much the same way as you would view prior to your beginning. Religions have built up this idea that because there's some potential afterlife, something to keep going, that it creates a fear of what it's like to be dead. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's a huge unknown. What's it like to be dead? And all of the evidence that we have points to the conclusion that you, you won't, there won't be a you to be dead or experience right. being dead. It's just you exist now, and at some point you won't exist. Uh, yeah. and, and, and getting people to to understand that and come to grips with it, I think, can go a long way to eliminating some of the fears that religions uh, offer. And if it turns out that, for example, I'm wrong, and there is some afterlife, well, apparently it's a bonus. Um, yeah. You know, uh, <laughs> even, if, even if it's an absolutely terrible afterlife, um, I don't see any reason to think that I can do anything about it or change any of this stuff. Yeah. Um, and I'll, I'll be... Uh, very surprised and curious, and I have a whole new world to explore, although I don't think that there's any likelihood that that's what's going to happen. Yeah. Well, and and I think that um, one of the things that, that we've done with this experience is we've, we've never, um, like, imposed on our son these whole masculine stereotypes that you have to not cry or not show your emotion. Um, we've never wanted him to, to feel like the only emotion he could expressed was anger right and so you know we've we've supported him when he's you know cried over this we've encouraged him to do what he needs to do to grieve and um you know express that yeah and And, i suspect and i have no expertise here but you having said that it, it goes with something that i've suspected which is when you deprive not necessarily by force but by influence people of the the these specific emotional outlets um, all it does is amplify the others. So right. the anger is amplified because we couldn't deal with, you know, sadness in the way that mm-hmm. was healthy. So on that note, uh, we're going to go ahead and start taking calls. Yeah. And uh, as a reminder, after we're done, some of the folks involved get together and go to Threadgills. They're, they'll put the address up right It'll be. Down. Some are there. We can't actually. See. I, yeah. I keep looking down at an empty screen. I know. Just because it's, I'm, I'm trained to look at the screen, even though there's nothing on it. And it and it keeps flashing periodically, kind of taunting us. Yeah, that it's maybe like, it's coming oh, alive. Oh, 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 no. Oh, no, sorry. Sorry. We're going. So we'll start off with uh, Adam in Tennessee. Thanks for waiting. Hello, Adam. You're there. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. We can. Sure. I guess I wanted to present with you where I'm currently at, as I have morphed many times in my life from being born to a religious family to kind of going to maybe soft slash hard atheism to now maybe more of an agnostic deist slash uh, theist. And I wanted to present my argument for maybe something you hate. I've heard you mention in debates, you kind of hate the 
agnostic theist group, or not hate, but they kind of irk you. No, so the, the only agnostic group that I have an issue with are the ones that mi- that give inaccurate information about theism and atheism and pretend that they have some haughty, intellectually superior, you know, like the theists are uh, stupid in this direction and the atheists are stupid in this direction and we are the only ones with, you know, the, the, a valid intellectual position because it, that, all that means is they, they misunderstand atheism, they misunderstand the burden of proof. I mean, they can't even acknowledge that they all are, probably are atheists. Um, but it's it's not... Agnosticism and atheism are, are two separate things. One is about belief and the other one is about knowledge. Oh, yes, very much so. And that's why... I kind of, I know you can't choose what you believe, and so I kind of, that kind of what pushes some people to call me an atheist, but some people call me a theist. I kind of, it's very hard to say, but I was going to present with you maybe... Well, do you believe that a God exists? (laughs) If I had to hedge my bets, I can't convince myself you're right, and that's why some people are going to throw me into the atheist. I'm just, yeah. I mean, you you either... Honestly... To answer honestly, no, I can't say I believe a God exists, but I want to believe. Well, that, that's, that's a completely separate issue. Yeah. Yeah. I know. So, I mean, you know, if you're a theist if you believe, and you're an atheist if you don't. I think the God that I want to believe in is the one I want to... It goes off of Pascal's wager. And I think people get Pascal's wager all wrong. And I know that's yeah. another topic that's been kind of gone over too much. But the whole premise is you know, if I believe in nothing but a lie, what have I lost? But the point, I think, in religion is to make the world a better place. So if you believe in nothing but a lie, what have you done for the world with that lie? And religion being like a meme that just spreads everywhere, why not try to optimize religion and to make religion better by taking out what religion doesn't need and by trying like to a God? a better religion? Yeah. Yeah, and, and I, I, I actually, you know, I don't worship any sort of God. But I, what I do believe, if a God does exist, is that a God would have perfect morality. So the thing and is, if you, remove, if you remove all the things that religions don't need or that aren't true, I think, and, and you keep the good things, for my money, what you end up with is secular humanism. And I would agree. And I think when you package it that way, that's the problem. Maybe it's deceptive to say, but to package a religion where God is not a necessity to then replace religions where God is a necessity is kind of the transitional state between religion and secular humanism. And maybe part of my mind knows that. I think part of the indoctrinate, I was I went to a Baptist school growing up, Catholic mm-hmm. family, Jewish family, a lot of religion around me. So I wonder in part if the way I was manufactured turned me out this way to have this constant struggle, slightly pulling me back. I have those nights where you wake up and you say, oh man, does the rapture happen? Am I going to hell? But you know those are all just implanted into your mind. So I'm, I'm, I'm more confused than ever, I think, because, uh, first of all, I think one of the things that, you, that religion doesn't need that you can remove, which is why you end up with secular humanism, is this idea um, of, you know, worship or uh, structure or anything else. Secular humanism, while it counts as a religion by the Supreme Court under protected religious ideas. It's a philosophical construct. It is a list of, you know, these are the things that we believe to be the case, that, you know, we have to solve our problems on our own, um, and that there are better ways to do this. Um, But you're talking, so 
I'm not going to say, oh, you're an atheist. Um, you, you either believe in a God or you don't. What label you use is entirely up to you. Whether or not you want to believe in a God uh, is a completely separate question from whether one exists. And, and when you talk about the God you want to be, believe in, you, you also, uh, it, it's listed here that you were going to kind of give some sort of Pascal's wager type defense of this. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that's where I kind of came up with this own argument in my head where, you know, Pascal's wager is, you know, if you, you know, why not believe just to believe? And there's a lot more to it. It's a lot more than just one sentence. Yeah, if you go out to my YouTube channel or my Atheist Debates Project, I've got a 35-minute video that goes in detail on everything that's wrong with Pascal's wager, both in its modern usage and with Blaise Pascal's original version. So well, think um, of it this way. Go ahead. No, I'm saying you, you have a new version, so or your own version, so go ahead. Yeah, so when it comes to picking a religion, if you can pick one, and I know we can't make ourselves believe in a religion as much as I try, you know, I'm just trying to convince myself of that, but religion is like buying a lottery ticket, and everyone gets to buy one lottery ticket. And Does everybody have to buy a lottery ticket? No, you don't have to buy a lottery ticket. You can decide not to buy one. And maybe that is, and I've heard you say in the past, maybe that is what the God or gods want us to do, is to evaluate all of these and say they have not met the burden of proof, and then we just deny all religions. Sorry, there's a ringer going off. Not only that, but when it comes to lottery tickets, the smart move is to not buy one. Yeah. Ah, but, but this lottery ticket is free. Let's say it's free... Oh, okay. Well, I know not all. That's a good thing. Not all lottery tickets are free because with Pascal's wager, you do lose a lot by investing in some religions. But maybe some of them are free or promote better things, and that's why I think the better religion would almost be the stepping stone towards secular humanism. That is, why not just, just, yeah, just go with yeah. secular humanism? Yeah, I mean, if, if, if you why yeah. would you want a stepping stone to secular humanism once you recognize that secular humanism is your goal? I guess because you have to get to a goal somehow. Does that make sense? It, well, it, the world, it's, even I myself, I think that's part of the battle. I'm sorry, I interrupted you, Jen. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, um, why do you need stepping stones? I mean, belief is binary. You either are convinced a God exists or you're not. And once you're not convinced, then, I mean, there's no stepping stone. You're there. Well, you're there to at non-belief, so why not go all the way to secular humanism from that point? And I think, you see, that's why a lot of people might classify me, classify me as an atheist, but I, I do still read the Bible. I think it was Jefferson said. Well, so do I. There's words of good, yeah, because there are, and I'm not, that's a whole other thing, but um, I just feel as though maybe there's a replacement needed, and I'm not arguing against secular humanism when I actually am for some reason, but I think replacing the bad religions of the world with a better religion is almost what we need. Or I don't why? Think it's the goal of why? Because Dennis LeBay, uh, who's on nonprofits, he and I did nonprofits, just the two of us, for quite a little while, and he said something um, that I've repeated many times. Um, what you're getting at is something that was expressed to him as you know. Hey, if you get rid of religion, what do you replace it with? And Dennis's reply was, when you get rid of cancer, what do you replace it with? Getting rid of it is, is what you do. That's the goal. It, that it, Health is the result. 
you don't need a slightly less damaging disease uh, to take the next step towards health. You just get rid of the cancer. You, you, you seem to be kind of opting for this, um, either you need something or you think people in general need something, um, baby steps uh, to get away from, oh, this is a terrible organized religion, so let me take several baby steps to get away from religion. And in reality, um, I, I, don't, I, I see that there are steps, that it's a gradual process for some people, but that doesn't mean that those steps are through things like religion. It's just a process of learning new things and changing who you are. I, I think that summarizes up my point very well, and it's, I, I, also, I, I think that summarizes it up, and it, you gave me a lot to think about. I really wanted to mention at least one other thing. Okay. Um, I was coming out of a Kroger, and a gentleman stopped me, an older man, and he just saw me, and it was probably about 12 or 12.30 last Sunday. He said, son, where did you go to church this morning? I said, oh, I don't go to church, and we got into a talk, and I told him all my thoughts. And he, of course, found out that I believe in evolution, or I, you know, <gasps> as much as, because it's a fact. I know. Yeah. And he said, how do you look outside? Look outside, son. How do you think all this got here? So that's basically look at the trees. Mm-hmm. And I told him my doubts on religion. And he said, you got to stop with all the what if. you gotta, you got to stop with all the what if. And I, I just... I couldn't believe it. Like those you got to stop with all the what ifs. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, what what I, makes I, that extra funny? What makes that especially funny to me is um, a member of my wife's family when they were having this discussion during their discovery that she was an atheist, um, and she was citing science uh, and, and things like that. She was told, "You need to quit all that thinking." Mm-hmm. <laughs> And, and this is nothing new. Uh, the, the idea that reason is the enemy of faith has been around for ages. Um, I, I am always baffled. I, I, I actually think it's disingenuous because I think that he probably does do a lot of what-ifs in other areas. And the people who were admonishing Beth for thinking uh, probably do a lot of thinking in other areas. They just want to set their religious views uh, in this enclosed right. space that is immune to uh, inquiry or, or, or thought. And that is an obvious mistake. Getting them to realize why it's an obvious mistake is not an easy task, which is why this show will probably go on until I'm dead, whether I'm on <laughs> it or not. <laughs> but not today's well, episode. Give me a lot to think about. And I appreciate it very much. And it was an honor speaking with both you and Jen, Matt. Uh, thank you very much. Right, thanks, Adam. Thanks. Appreciate it. Yeah, there's this persistent idea that people need religion or some people need religion. And I don't agree with that at all. It I also think. comes from atheists. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. And, and especially arrogant, shitty atheists yeah. who are like, well, I don't need religion anymore, but let's let the yes, little people the little keep, people need yeah, it, yes. screw you. <laughs> uh, I think one of the bad things that happens a lot in the atheist community is that uh, some folks are a little too self-congratulatory about getting the correct answer to the easiest question yes. in the world, which is, do I have any reason to believe this? Do I have a good reason to believe this? Nope. Okay. Now I'm right. And I'm right about everything. Yes. Uh, no, you're not. You're probably wrong about as many things as you were wrong about before, except for one. Yeah. And you may have replaced that one with the new idea. The idea that you're not wrong has replaced that, so you're just as wrong as you were. Yeah. <laughs> the math of wronginess. Hey, we got Joe in Atlanta, Georgia. Thanks for waiting. 
Hey, how you doing? I'm doing right. well. How are you? I'm pretty good. Is, is the sound okay? Am I too loud? No, we can hear you. Awesome, man. I've been waiting to get on this show. Like, seriously, me and my girl, Nisha, we watch your show. Um, and we'll put this, you know, but we're trying to think, you know, you know, when y'all say logic is the best way to go about determining, uh, you know, what's real, and what's false. Like, we're trying to understand what you mean in, you know, in its entirety. What do you mean when you say that? What do I mean when I say that logic is the best way of understanding reality? I think we've right. said right. that right. science is the best way. Science, science which is based on logic. Yeah, based I mean, on... you have to have logic and you have to have reason. Um, okay. Well, I, I think the question is this to start with. How else would you determine if something is true or not without using logic? Okay. So, like, I remember back in the day, I mean, back watching your show back in the day when you would say, uh, you know, you were a fundamentalist, you know, Christian. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? And... You know, I'm a minister of music at my church. My folks, they're, you know, they're preachers and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I'm thinking about this, and it's like, you know, I look at it like, you know, some would say faith, and some would say, you know, you got to have, you know, hope and faith and stuff. Sure. Like that. And that's that's what I would normally say. But how is that a path to truth? I mean, because people from all different religions have hope, and people who aren't part of religions have hope. Um, and people exercise faith in many different religions, and we know that they can't all be true. I, I'm, I don't think there's any position you could possibly have that you couldn't say, I believe this, and I take it on faith. You know, I could believe that, uh, that, uh, that white folks are superior to black folks, and I could just take that on faith, and I would be wrong, right? <laughs> right, right. So if, if the tool, if faith, if your justification can lead to both true and false conclusions, uh, then it's clearly not a mechanism by which to discern what is true. Okay, okay. I, I mean, it's like, it's, like, it's like being in a science lab and having access to a beaker to measure how much liquid you're going to put in and just taking it on faith that you got the right answer in an unmarked glass. just grabbed an unmarked glass, poured some in, and I'm going to take it on faith that this is 500 mils, and dumping it in. Why would you ever do that when you have a graduated cylinder over here that is marked so that you can measure exactly 500 mils? Wow, wow, wow. And that's what's so crazy because I be thinking like that sometimes, but like I be having doubts, you know what I'm saying? I be having doubts in the back of my head, like, no, don't think that way. No, don't, no, like. Well, that's. But that's it like makes sense, you know? Yeah. Well, that's your indoctrination. I mean, you. You probably grew up in the church, right? Right, right. And so... I was actually seven-day Adventist. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, so, I mean, there, there's there's a lot of indoctrination that, that goes on when you grow up in a church, and it's hard to overcome that. And one of the things that, that um, most religions teach is that you're not supposed to have doubts. You know, you're, yeah, yeah that, that doubting is bad, that it's yeah. sinful, that it comes from Satan, that you should have confidence in your relationship. The Holy Spirit cannot possibly spin you wrong. God has the truth. God has a plan for your life. He has a direction. And there should be no doubt if that's the case. And if there are doubts, this is a failing of yours to walk in the right. Spirit correctly, or it is uh, a, a, you know, Satan trying to mislead you, and so doubts are bad. And the question that I have in response to that is, if your religion is true, 
what possible fear could there be from having doubts and investigating to find out whether it's true? Because the truth has nothing to fear with investigation. I mean, if, if, you're, if you're completely innocent, you would want to be investigated thoroughly so we could get all the information that you're innocent of whatever you've been accused of. Uh, and if you're guilty, that's when you want, you know, you, you'd rather not have the investigation be very thorough. Yeah. And so religions want a not thorough investigation into whether or not they're true. And it seems to me that the best reason, the only reason that makes any sense is that somebody realized there are countless religions out in the world. We think all the rest of them are wrong, but ours is right. And this is true for each of them. And so we'd love for you to investigate all of those, but we don't want you to investigate ours. And the truth is that atheists have had to do absolutely no work investigating religions. Because if you want to know what's wrong with Christianity, you can ask a Jew. And if you want to know what's wrong with Judaism, you can ask a Muslim. And if you want to know what's wrong with Islam, you can ask maybe a Scientologist if they've actually bothered to investigate. If you want to know what's wrong with the First Baptist Church, you can ask the Second Baptist Church. And they'll tell you they've investigated and left it. But each individual church doesn't want you to investigate the tenets that they're trying to instruct you with. Yo, that, yo, okay. So you're basically saying to me that the the same way uh, I think my religion is true, uh, a Muslim think their religion is true, and they and they think probably the way I see it is wrong. Just exactly. And and so the question to ask is. If that's the case, if you believe your religion's true and your your Islam Muslim neighbor thinks that their religion is true, and I am not convinced that either of them are true, how do we resolve which, if any of which, if either of you are correct? Because only one of you can be right, right? Yeah, yeah. So how do we figure out which one of you is right? Don't we have to exercise doubts and investigate? Yeah. And when I, when I exercised my doubts and investigated, I found out that I didn't have a good reason to believe my religion. But I didn't give up on religions or the, or the God concept entirely. I went out and I explored other religions and then realized that this, you know, there's never going to be enough time to do this. And so to make it easier, I went out and explored philosophy and epistemology in order to figure out what kind of God might exist. Because if I could figure out what kind of God could exist, that would tell me what category of religions to go to. Do I go to the the monotheistic religions, to the henotheistic religions, to the non-theistic religions. Um, and what I found is the we are blocked from being able to confirm the existence of the supernatural or its ability to interact with the natural world. We just have no way to, to investigate this, which is why science doesn't include supernatural uh, causation within its, its methods. And until that changes, there's no way to find out if any one religion is right. And we know that people have invented religions. We know that Mormonism was invented by jo- Joseph Smith. Um, we know that Scientology was, was invented by L. Ron Hubbard. Um, we know that, and, and we have good reason to think that all the religions that aren't my religion were probably invented by somebody. So doesn't that mean that, hey, it's possible that my religion was invented by somebody as well, and that none of us actually have anything that's true or anything you know, substantive that's true. I mean, that's, you know what, though? That's a great point because I research, you know, Mormonism, and and I go and I look, you know, over, you know, my religion, and I look at other religions, and, you know, all of our stories, you know, to any one of us, if we're looking at each other, we're looking at one another, it could seem crazy to them. You know what I'm saying? 
Yeah. Um, like, you know, the Mormons and, and like us, you know, we believe, you know, and, 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 you know, I say this sometimes and they be getting upset, but, you know, we believe in a man, you know, who rose from the dead. And, you know, I watch them show, you say we don't have any evidence, you know, prior to the Bible or any other type of myth that, you know, this actually has happened in real life. You know what I'm saying? And I, and I listen to that and it's like, that makes sense. We don't have any proof. And, and I also, you know, going back to the cosmos, uh, what, what's his name, babe? Neil deGrasse Tyson? Yeah. 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 Um, he, he says, follow that. That That's the way you follow. You follow the evidence where it leads. You don't lead it, you know? And that's been stuck in my head. Like, yeah. And I feel like that's what we don't do. So I'm just conflicted. So, well, on August, on, on August yeah. 6th, I'll be debating whether or not Jesus resurrected from the dead. Um, and so shortly after that August 6th date, it'll be available online to watch. And you'll be able to see, you know, my thoughts on this, along with uh, Blake Junta's thoughts on this, and perhaps questions from the audience as well. Um, and, you know, that might be helpful. The big conclusion is that I want to make sure that people don't say, oh, wait a minute, I don't have any good reason to believe that I'm correct in my current religion, therefore my religion is in fact false, because that is a fallacy. But the conclusion to reach is, if I don't have good reason to believe it's true, then I shouldn't believe it, and I should keep you know, looking for evidence to potentially justify it, and also looking for things that would falsify it. For example, if you believe that God wants to have a relationship with everybody, then the fact that he doesn't disconfirms that God. That God can't exist, because if the God wants a relationship with everybody and is capable of having a relationship with everybody and does not have a relationship with everybody, then he doesn't exist. That, see, that's a, that's a great point. Cause, like, that's another thing. Like, I thought about, like, everybody has, if, if, if God is out there, right? And I still, you know, I'm, I'm trying to fight it. I'm trying to fight the thought that he might not be, even though, you know, that's not really doing, you know, that's not going about it in a scientific way. It's like, if he does, you know, why is it like we're all getting different messages? Yeah, all these yeah. Mm-hmm. Why are there a thousand, thousand denominations that identify as Christian that disagree on every point of doctrine? Um, why is it that instead of just coming around and speaking to everybody, revealing himself to everybody, why do I have to become an expert in dead languages and uh, astrophysics and geology and <laughs> learn? You would think that right. if there was a God who wanted to, this is in, in a, in a, you know, conversational sense, it's the problem of divine hiddenness, is if a God existed that people are claiming has these sorts of characteristics, we would expect to see certain things. And the fact that we don't see those things, the fact that everybody has a different message, the the problem of uh, disparate revelations, um, the fact that I can't, if if I tell you that I have a relationship with Jen and you question that, I can then demonstrate it. I can I can bring forth Gen Peoples and introduce yes. her to you, and we can talk about this. What if I tell you that I have a girlfriend, but you don't know her? By the way, Jen's not my girlfriend. I didn't mean that. Yeah. But, uh, uh, what if I told you I had a girlfriend, but you don't know her because she goes to another school? Now, we normally don't believe that, right? That's, that's the default answer that somebody gives um, when they're trying to cover up for the fact that perhaps they don't have a, a significant other. Well, that's what religions are doing. They're they're telling you that you've got a special invisible friend, but you can't quite interact with him in the way that you would with anybody else who was actually your special friend. Yo, no lie, that sounds like the 
Santa Claus thing too, y'all. Like yeah. It sounds just like the Santa Claus, you know. The difference is there's more evidence for Santa Claus because when you're a kid, you actually get presents. Yeah. And you can go to the mall and get your picture taken with him. So there's, uh, granted, it's all bad evidence. It's yeah. all misleading, but, it, but there's more for it. But, you know, if you're seven years old, it's reasonable to believe that Santa Claus exists because you've got you know, you you got some evidence. You're available. You know, it's entirely possible to be reasonable and reach an incorrect conclusion because the you can only base your reason on the information you have. And if there is, you know, a conspiracy to deceive you, which is yes. the case with Santa Claus <laughs> and, by the way, with religions, um, you can you are only basing it on that. So what you have to do is step outside of the information that you're given and go looking for the extra information that would either confirm it or contradict it. Yeah, you know, I my mind right now is like <laughs> it's like exploding. Like I don't understand. Like okay, I, it's just taking all this information in because it's like I'm trying not to, you know, upset you know my family. Oh yeah, and all that stuff. But it's like. And by the way, it makes sense. I, I not only understand that, but I empathize, and I'm not going to say you know, oh, when we hang up the phone, Joe's going to be an atheist. Uh, who knows? Um, I'm very happy that you are exploring and questioning and open to discussion and information. Uh, keep doing what you're doing. Uh, keep being honest to who you are. Keep being open to, you know, questioning things. And you'll end up where you end up. Um, this isn't just a, oh, but if you find that you don't believe anymore, that's going to present a whole host of new issues that we deal with quite often about, you know, do you tell your family? How do you tell your family? How is this going to happen? And we know people who have gone from a theistic, you know, predominantly religious environment who become atheists, and they wind up losing all of their family, all of their support network. And this is a fear, the fear wow. of being ostracized from everybody you love and care about, that keeps people active in churches even when they secretly really don't believe this stuff anymore. And the, the, the nice thing is, is that we now have organizations recovering from religion, the Secular Therapist Project. Um, we, ha we have organizations that specialize in helping people. There are now new places for people to land. But the question to ask is this. If God is love and your religion is true and people love you, why would you ever have to fear of being ostracized for not agreeing with them about this? You know, and that's one thing I never really understood, like, you know, with like gay people or, or or transgender, you know, the LGBT community, like, yep. you know, people who don't believe no more, like, at the end of the day, you know, if God's supposed to be love, I feel like we're supposed to treat everybody, like, like certain churches you can't walk in with a hat or you got to leave. Yep. So it's just yeah. like all these rules, all these types. And certain churches you can't go into without head covering as well. Yes. So th those those are just the ridiculous rules. But your your link to the LGBT community is um, is is accurate, and it's because we've seen so many times people have had a child who uh, announces and comes out that they're they're LGBT and they are excluded from the family and shunned. And when I've I've seen atheists, I'm I'm in relationships with atheists who when they come out. Their family wants nothing to do with them anymore. They are essentially excluded and shunned. But it's worse because uh, they'll send messages to say, 
well, we love you, and we're hoping that you come back to our beliefs right. so that we can love you again. Yeah. And my answer to them is, fuck you. You have no idea what love is. Whatever you're calling love is so perverse. Yes. It is conditional. It is based on, am I going to be what you want to be? It is antithetical to the idea of freedom, the freedom to be who I am. And some of these things aren't even a matter of, of choice or decision you are either compelled to believe or not believe, and then you're going to say to me, I'm no longer good enough to, for you to care about because we don't share these beliefs, then my response is, my life is better off without you. I would rather have people who care about me for who I am and not expect me to conform to their view. Which is why I always say family are the people who act like family. And if somebody is blood related to you and they don't act like family, they're not your family. Mm. But. You know, and you know what though? That's so true. Like my job, you know, in the church. Like I told you, my folks that my mother, she's an evangelist, she's a singer. Just got her. You know, she just got ordained as a minister. My father used to minister all my life. Mm-hmm. My job is to get people to God and show them love. I just play the keys and sing, and you know, just be the minister of music. Yep. You know mm-hmm. And it's just like to, that's that's all I want to do is just make people happy, you know what I'm saying? Like that's that's what I do, but like it's it, like thinking about all of it, it's just like I think man. there are better I think there are better ways to make people happy. Um not not that you're not making people happy, I'm sure that you are. Um but if if the goal is to actually make people happy, then it would seem to me that that doesn't require any sort of religion or religious ideas. And because religions set up boundaries of we want to make these people happy because they're part of our in-group, but we don't want to make these other people happy because they're not part of the in-group, that is a limitation. I would rather get rid of that barrier and make as many people happy as possible um, with a realization that there are people who are going to be unhappy that I've done this, but that is their problem. The people that who's... I, I've had relationships end because I'm an atheist. They no longer want to be friends of mine. In almost all of those circumstances, they're the ones that ended the relationship, not me. Um, and that's their problem. I would have been happy. I'm, I have plenty of friends who are believers in many different religions. Um, I'm happy to continue being friends with them despite disagreeing. Now, there may be limits on that. And the limits are when they begin to encroach on, you know, my life and try to impose their views on my life. They, they're removing themselves from what a friend does or what a family member does. But I know we've, uh, we've given you a lot to think about, Joe, and I, I appreciate the call. Um, please call back. Keep touch with us. Let us know what's going on and uh, if you have more questions. Yeah, and in the meantime, since you are in Atlanta, I want to make you aware of the fact that there is a group in Atlanta called Black Nonbelievers. And they have a Facebook page and, um, I believe, a website. And, and they're outstanding, by yes, the way. Yes, they uh, are. Uh, you know, Mandisa Latifa Thomas and others uh, are friends of mine. And uh, it, it's something to look into. And they would be welcoming even if you're not a non-believer yet. Yep. Word, word. Well, thank you all so much for having me on, man. Um, y'all really have given me a lot to think about. And, you know, I'll, I'll keep it in my mind and I'll look that up, you know. Um, but thanks again, uh, and I'll, I'll keep thinking. I'll keep using my, my brain, I guess. Good. That's all we've got. And by the way, Joe, uh, and to everybody else who's listening, if you ever make it out to the Austin area, you're welcome to come down to the show. There's, I don't know, 20 people or so sitting out there right now on the other side of the glass. We do the show live every Sunday from 430 to 6. 
and uh, we have limited parking, but we can squeeze some folks in here. That's right. Uh, and you'd be welcome to come down and hang out with us. And after the show's over, we go to Threadgill's up the road, uh, which they'll put the address up and stuff. Thanks for calling, Joe. I appreciate it. Thank you. See you later. Austin is uh, the keep it weird capital of the world, the yes, live music capital of the world. Um, I have friends who, who tell people how awesome Austin is and then say, say don't move here. Yeah. Because yeah. uh, <laughs> they're constantly worried that we're going to get so many people. No, invite the people you like. Yeah. Uh, make Austin better. Yeah. You know, don't just get, you know. I know. Everybody wants to lock the gate behind them. Yeah. <laughs> if, all, if, if the mega church down the road are the only people who are inviting new people to live in Austin, it won't be awesome. Anymore. Yeah. <laughs> this is the uh, the liberal, hippie, smoke weed and swim in town lake type place. And the That's only right. reason we let the governor live here is because this is where they built his house. That's right. <laughs> Otherwise, he'd have to live somewhere else. Yeah. All right. Justin in Topeka, thanks for waiting. Hi, hello. Hello. Hi. I have a question. Okay. How is it open? I'm, I'm from living in America. From an American standpoint, I have a, um, a question about Christianity. Okay. Um, why is it okay for like other religions to be taught in school, but it's so, but Christianity is so condemned? Could you try to explain that to me, please? Other religions aren't taught in schools. Yeah, they are theology, Greek mythology, Egyptian. Okay. Okay. So- that's yeah. That's a mythology course. Yeah. If you would like Christianity to be included in the mythology course, I would support yes, that. Yes, absolutely. I, in fact, I think Christianity should be included in the mythology course. Meanwhile, Christianity is also talked about in comparatives religions courses as well. And Christians, Christianity's privileged position in the United States in particular means that it's more likely to be taught on the sly in churches than any other religion. Yeah. The, opposition, okay, okay. the opposition to evolution, where teachers just don't teach it, the the um, the good news club that is trying to encroach into our schools, the people the, getting on the state board of education and revising school books such that they take a more Christian, more nominally Christian perspective. Uh, your your version, your view of what's happening, is the exact opposite of what is actually happening. We're not, we're not teaching Islam in schools. We're not teaching Judaism in schools. And we're not teaching Christianity in schools as a course where there's proselytizing. But how many how many schools have tried to add a Bible study or Bible class to schools in the last 10 years compared to how many have tried to add a Quran class or a uh, you know Bhagavad Gita class the, or whatever? The Torah as literature is not something that's being proposed. Yeah. I mean, you're. I, I hate to. I. I mean, I don't mean to just like be dismissive, but what yeah. you, what you're asserting is just factually the opposite of reality. Oh, okay, okay, okay. That I it? have another question. Okay. Okay. I have another question. Um, it's about biblical prophecy. Okay. Okay. How is it that people don't believe in the Bible, but everything in the Bible doesn't happen? Like, there's been more wildfire, more national disasters. Hang on, I need you to go. Hang, hang on, I need you to go back because you said, "How is it that people don't believe in the Bible?" And then everything after that was so rapid fire, I couldn't even understand what you're saying. So, what, what's the question? Okay, okay. How can people not believe in the Bible, but everything in the Bible was indicated just happened in the modern day? Is it? Yeah, like wildfires, floods, earthquakes are, are being known on national scales now, more than any other time in U.S. history. 
Is that uh, first of all? I yeah. don't know that that's necessarily true. Second yeah. of all, I don't know that the Bible predicts that. But let's say for a second, let's say that the Bible had predictions in there um, that you think are coming true. The problem with yeah. predictions and prophecy is this: number one, it has to be specific. And that means it needs to be answerable by a single occurrence, one and only occurrence, with a specified time and as much detail as possible. Because otherwise, any book that says there will be massive fires suddenly gets credit every time there seem to be massive fires, right? Correct. So what's the specific prophecy? Uh, I mean, well, well, what, about, what, about, what about when it says... In the end of the days, there will be melting of the eyes, melting of the flesh and stuff. That could be nuclear nuclear, nuclear power. The, the key word in your response is could be, or that's two yeah. words, but could is the, is the critical one. Um, so it could be the case that your book has a statement in it that is accurately borne out by something that's happening now. It could be the case. How do we know if it's because that book was predicting it or if it's because you're interpreting these events in such a way that it looks like the book is predicting it. It's not specific enough. If, if I go into a, uh, a restaurant and order a medium-rare steak, when it shows up, the waiter's not fulfilling prophecy. And if I predict that eventually we will have a woman president, it doesn't make me a prophet when it happens. If I were to, Even if I were to say, Hillary Clinton will be the next president of the United States... That doesn't mean that I have some special power to predict anything. I could have just gotten right by happenstance. I might turn out to be wrong. Um, okay, but, but, but you're talking about a scale of one, two years. How did you get by the six to thousands of years? You see prophecies and, and you see scientific evidence proven to prophecies. Like cities have been destroyed. There, there, have been, there have been scientific studies showing that the cities were destroyed. Okay. Okay. So how, how long ago were those cities destroyed? About 2,000 years ago. When were the books written? About 2,000 years ago. About 1,000 years ago. Yeah, so if the books are written <laughs> after this, how is that a prediction? It's a post-diction. And by the way, if the book also makes other predictions that don't come true, for example, the destruction of Tyr when Tyr is still here, how do you, how do you resolve that? Okay, we'll skip that one, and I'll ask this, and that is, let's say I had a book that made 10 predictions a 1,000 years ago, and they were fairly specific, and we have seen that nine of them have come true. What conclusion can we reach? Do we... Accusations to that book? What's that? That, that? that book is pretty accurate. Well, the book has seemingly been accurate nine times. Um, can we conclude that the tenth prediction is likely to come true as well? Yes. Why? Because the other nine have been predicted. Okay. So if I throw, if I flip a coin and it comes up heads nine times in a row, does that mean the tenth one's likely to be heads? No. All right. Now the next question is: Let's say it got all ten of them correct. What conclusion can we reach about why it got those correct? Because something of the stars told them that that's what's going to happen. Because like I believe in, like, psychology. You don't believe in psychology? I don't even know what the hell yeah. psychology is. But the conclusion that Psych we read... Psychics? Yeah, that's... Yeah. Uh, oh, you believe no. that you believe in psychic powers? Like, some people can have predictions and stuff like that, yeah. Yeah. Why would you believe in psychic powers? Every single time we've put psychic powers to the test, they have failed to demonstrate their efficacy. 
the James Randi Educational Foundation had a million dollar prize for years for anybody who could demonstrate psychic powers, paranormal powers, etc., and nobody could. Every, every newspaper psychic, there are websites out there that will go through the list of their predictions, and you can, once you get rid of the ones that are general, um, their track record for predicting things is abysmally low, and sometimes it's worse than chance. So on those grounds, why would anybody believe that there's psychic powers? Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, so of your, of your research, you have found that psychology is fake. Again, we don't even know what psychic, psychology is. I think if you're talking is. about psychic, psychic, sure, psychic phenomena, yeah. my position is not that they don't exist. It's that I have no good reason to believe that they do exist, and every time we've tested it, it has failed to demonstrate that it's true. Okay, okay. If, if somebody actually thought, believed that they had psychic powers, they could demonstrate this. I mean... First of all, not only would you know, the JREF prize is now not happening, or at least not the way it used to, but let's say you could you could read my mind. That'd be pretty easy to demonstrate, wouldn't it? Yeah. So if somebody could demonstrate this, what would happen? I mean, wouldn't they get like a Nobel Prize, open up an entire new field of scientific discovery and inquiry? Um, wouldn't they... You know, you can say that some of them would just hide this and use it for their own advantage, because that's what I'd do. If I could read people's minds, I don't think I'd tell anybody until it was until it was necessarily the best thing for me to do. I think what I'd do is I'd be the best business negotiator on the planet, um, and I'd be the best poker player on the planet, because I'd know exactly what your cards were. Um, and yet we don't have anybody who performs at that rate. We don't have any confirmation of it. We haven't opened up a new field of science. I mean, it's, it's one thing to say you believe something, but the why is the important part, and, and you don't seem to have a why. Well, I believe in it because it's just like, I believe in the Bible because it's just like the Bible really saved my life. Well, you know that the Bible... Like, like, like... The Bible, the Bible is opposed to psychics, witches, and soothsayers. Those are things of the devil. Oh, really? Yeah, you oh, should yeah. read your Bible. Wasn't the prediction? Wasn't the predictions in the Bible considered a psychic prediction? What's that? Wouldn't like Ezekiel, Hosea, Daniel, and all that like psychics? Would not be predicted as predict? Would not be as prophecy? Would, would prophecy considered a psychic? I, I don't understand your question. Well. According to the Bible, he's, he's saying, wouldn't these prophecies count as psychic? Oh, no. No, it's different because yeah, it comes from God. That's right. Yeah, according to the Bible, which you should read, um, th these uh, prophecies were directly communicated from God to the prophets who recorded yes. them. So okay. we're, we're running up on time, Justin. I'll, I'll let you uh, explore right, that right. stuff and call us back another time. All right. Thank you. Thanks. All right. Uh, -da -da. It's fun talking to Christians who don't read their Bible. Well, yeah. Um, and on that note, we'll talk to Frank in Dallas. Thanks for waiting. Hey, can you hear me? I can. Yes. Uh, just a comment on that last caller. I'd just love to see one time somebody who believes fulfilled prophecies um, are good evidence for the Bible try to square that with the free will we're supposed to have. Um, just can't see how those two can mesh together. Yeah, I, I um, thought I thought that that point would be a bit too distracting, given <laughs> g g given the the 
tone of the conversation so far. But yeah, it's it's one of those things that uh, it, it does. The, well, the, the Christian idea of libertarian free will is is garbage, no matter what your position about free will outside of that is. Um, it just doesn't fit with a God who uh, knows everything and has a plan. Right. And uh, one other comment about your previous callers. I thought that the, the second caller, Joe, was a perfect example of someone who doesn't need religion in response to what Adam was saying at the very beginning. Yeah. Um, that was just, that was just uh, a perfect segue. He, he, he's my, got a great goal. I, I, my, what he feels most passionately is to make people happy. I think that's an incredibly laudable goal um, that doesn't require any religion and may, in fact, be hindered by it. Absolutely. Um, I guess the reason I'm calling is because uh, I've, I've heard you, uh, Matt, and, and sometimes Jen, talk about uh, theism in terms of uh, the burden of proof of, of a criminal trial. Mm-hmm. And I want to clarify a couple of points that, that I think will maybe be helpful to get other people to understand kind of where you're coming from. Okay. And part of that is um, when we talk about evidence, we're really talking about uh, a bunch of different things, right? We're talking not only about um, whether or not that evidence is relevant, but also whether it's authentic and reliable. And this is, by the way, coming from a, a legal standpoint, which um, is my profession. Sure. So you can't necessarily just dismiss um, the entire Bible as irrelevant because, you know, if, if there is a trial, um, and by the way, I think uh, Christianity and all the other religions do need to be put on a criminal trial. Um, but if, if you're going to have a trial, Exhibit A is going to be the Bible, right, or, or the Koran or whatever. Right. And the question of whether it's relevant is pretty easy. It absolutely is relevant. So I think we need to dig deeper and get into, is it authentic? Is it reliable? Um, and, and authenticity, I think some people are doing great work in this, like uh, Richard Carrier, and, and, and talking about the historicity of Jesus. Is, does, it, does the Bible, is it what it purports to be? Um, so I think once you, oh, go ahead. I, I I don't disagree with that. I mean, I've spent as much time as anybody I know, in, in, including perhaps Carrier, within you know my life of uh, exploring and evaluating the Bible. The thing is, it it would be Exhibit A, and we could explore the different claims within it and investigate them. But what we're going to find in many cases, this going back to the most recent call about prophecy is what kind of conclusion could you reach if something were true? And we are, the claims that are made um, are claims that we don't have the ability to investigate for the same reason that courts don't allow spectral evidence anymore. If somebody claims that they have it on, uh, on authority from God uh, that this book is reliable, um, which is essential at some point to everything pertaining to the Bible, because... When you talk about, uh, for example, the the origins of human beings, the story that's told in there, we can show where it conflicts with our understanding of origins of life and, and the universe uh, from science. And yet there are constantly ways to interpret it in such a way that they can try to make it consistent, which is how you not only have young earth creationists, but you have day-age creationists, and you can have metaphorical creationists and people will talk about the Genesis story's real purpose is not to tell us where we came from, but to show us how we fell from grace. And that is something that is ultimately untestable and unfalsifiable. And so if we, if we made a list of everything in the Bible, it falls into 
Well, I'll just go ahead and use my friend Aaron Ra's statement. It falls into two categories. It's either not evidently true or evidently not true. Now, that, that's not said that there's not true things in it. Um, the thing, you know, we can talk about places and things like that, but I'm talking about the, the doctrinal things of, of the theology, the passages that get to, you know, why people would believe. Um, if, if we were having a trial and uh, somebody was accused of witchcraft and they brought in an old book that, you know, talks about witches, that, I don't know that that's particularly relevant. So when somebody says, oh, I believe in Jesus Christ, and then they want to cite the Bible as their reason why, is there any case where we would present an ancient historical document that claims somebody rose from the dead and consider it to be good evidence for the claim that somebody wrote from the dead, rose from the dead. Well, right. And then I think what you're getting at is what a lot of Christians will, will object to when you try to dismiss the Bible, which is uh, if there are some things in it that are true, then that increases the likelihood that there are other things in it that are true. And I think the, the, the way to discount that argument is to show all of the things in it that are not true. Um, well, and, and especially but, the ones that are factual claims. I, actually, I disagree with that. And, and part of the reason I disagree with that is that um, several years ago I did a show, I believe I was on with Russell, and I talked about uh, the biblical account of the Babylonian captivity and whether, that was the, whether the biblical account was substantially true or whether that was fictionalized. And I explained the methods we would use to validate a claim in the Bible. And I like that one in particular because it makes a lot of testable claims. It gives specific things like names of kings and and generals and dates and who the opposing forces were you know, in the battles and things like that. And I explained the methodology we would use. And the, the conclusion of that was that the, the account of the Babylonian captivity in the Bible is substantially true. And we know that in part because, like I said, it makes specific claims. And then what we can do to validate those claims is you, you go and look at the historical records of the other side. And if they're in substantial agreement, then you know that that's probably how it happened. And we can find that. There are Babylonian records that document this. So we can't say that all of the Bible is not true and dismiss it because there are some actual historical events that are recorded in the Bible. What's important to understand is the method we use to validate that those are actual historical events and to determine that that is true. Because if we apply those same methods to some other claims in the Bible, we can say that the Exodus did not happen, um, the resurrection did not happen, uh, the fall of Jerusalem, or not Jerusalem, but... um, Oh, I forget now which one I'm talking about. But basically, there's Jericho. A, Jericho. Yeah, the fall of Jericho did not happen the way it's recorded. Um, and there are many other accounts in the Bible that simply didn't happen the way they're recorded there. And so right. what's, and what's important is that we understand the methodology we're going to use to evaluate the claims and that we're consistent when we apply that. And, and I absolutely agree with that. I think that the, we would test the same truth claims about, you know, um, Abraham Lincoln, vampire hunter. Sure. Um, just because he's a historical figure doesn't mean 
he right. went out and actually slew vampires. But I think the thing so I think the, each individual claim individually. Right. I think the thing that I that I subtly disagree with, although we're we're pretty much in agreement, um, was this idea that it would be a good idea to spend a bunch of time to show the things in the Bible that are false. And while I think that is a, a really useful thing, um, I think it's also been done. Um, and at the end of the day, what I know is that pointing to things that you can show are false or probably false within the Bible uh, does very little to convince a number of believers that the rest of the book is somehow unreliable. They have a number of things where, well, it's inspired in its original version and you're talking about scribal errors or all these other tap dancers. And what it does is it potentially shifts the burden of proof because they have a burden of proof to demonstrate why we should consider the Bible reliable on whatever topic they're going to talk about. And so if they think the Bible is reliable on the resurrection of Jesus, they have the burden of proof to show that this is the case. We don't have a burden of proof to demonstrate that it's not the case. And if we start pointing to other er errors instead of the one related to this resurrection, I'm not sure that we've done a lot to convince some people. So this is really a thing of there's a lot of different approaches and people are going to change their mind for different reasons. There are certainly people where they believe the Bible is the literal perfect truth with no contradictions. And so if you start pointing out some of the errors, they will throw it out. There are others that will then rationalize and get rid of those things that are problems but keep the other things. And there are some who you're not going to get to for any of those reasons. You have to actually talk about why we should consider this uh, an authoritative book to begin with, or set the entire book aside, talk about what they actually believe and whether or not there's good reason. And when they point to the Bible, then you you know have the discussion about well, okay, you know I could have a book, um, you know I could pull up the Harry Potter books and find plenty of good wise things said in there. That doesn't mean that uh, those wise things came that J.K. Rowling is a god. And, and you know, Matt, I think you touched on something that, is, that I think is extremely important, which is um, where does the burden of proof rest? And with the, with the claims of divinity and the claims of, of miracles, those clearly rest on uh, the person making those claims. But I think when you're talking about the historical facts that the Bible is trying to uh, portray as true, I don't think there's any problem with accepting the burden of proof on those specific claims and just showing that they're false based on the evidence that we do have. Well, I, I if, you, right with, if you think you have a compelling case to show that a claim is false, you are free to adopt a burden of proof. But here's what happens. And, and I, I'm in agreement with you. But let's say I'm a Christian, and I'm convinced that I have the truth. And you want me, I have a burden of proof. You want me to demonstrate that what I believe is true, and I fail. That impacts me in way A, for example. Instead of doing that, instead of making me hold up my burden of proof, you come at me trying to disprove the book that I, I believe is generally true, and you're convinced that you can meet your burden of proof. If you fail to do that, and, it, and this is, all takes place in my mind as the Christian, if you fail to convince me that you've met your burden of proof, not only have you not swayed me, you have strengthened my position because now my position has been challenged and has failed to be defeated, and that can make it stronger. So I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm saying that there's a danger both ways. A lot of it has to do with reading who you're talking to. Uh, this is where we get way outside of a courtroom, uh, or maybe we don't. Maybe, maybe a lot of it has to do with uh, the jury selection process and knowing who the jurors are and what's going what's to reach them. Well, that's why um, I, I like that story about 
the Babylonian captivity because there are specifics in there, and in part because I can use it in a way that's non-threatening to a Christian and demonstrate to them a methodology I would use to prove um, to any skeptic that the account in the Bible is substantially true for this event and get them to accept the methodology that I used. Once they accept the methodology, then we can turn and say, okay, let's apply that same methodology to your other claims and see what happens. And so this method is not a secret. It's been out there for a long time. And and I will tell you that it's uh, fairly rare to come across a Christian who will look at that and say, hmm, yeah, you're right. Maybe I should think about this more. They generally start dissembling and, and think of some other reason why the methodology they accepted in the case of the Babylonian captivity is not applicable <laughs> to something else. That you would know, be frustrating it in, is, in, there's in this court for sure. cognitive dissonance that kicks in that they just cannot accept the fact that, you know, a method that, that will return a reliable result returns a result they don't like. It's the reason why so. DNA con- evidence convicts all sorts of people, but O.J. went free. Yeah. And I guess I gets to the point of um, how much evidence do you have to pile on top to be able to convince yeah. somebody? And th- this is where we get into not just who does the burden rest with, but also um, what is the level of the burden? What is the level yep. of... Well, of proof that you need to, to convince somebody and you know we have different levels in, in the law where it's yeah. um, preponderance versus beyond a reasonable doubt which I've heard you all talk about and, and you know if you get somebody to establish that right off the bat with, within the methodology uh, you know th- then I think you can point out the cognitive dissonance, dissonance that, that occurs at, at the end of it where you've laid out all the evidence and they still refuse to accept it. Yeah there are mm-hmm. people whose burden of proof is it hasn't been shown to be impossible Therefore, yeah. that's yes. enough for me to believe it. <laughs> right. And really, we're talking, right. there's not a really good risk assessment on this. Um, the, the, the different standards, uh, you know, with preponderance of evidence uh, to beyond a reasonable doubt, et cetera, these are, these are based reasonably on the risk involved. You know, the, the better that 10 guilty men go free than one innocent man go to jail, although it's not just men. Well, there's a lot of men going to jail. Anyway, um, those standards are there because of risk. And when it comes to this, Pascal's wager is this lie that makes it seem that there's absolutely no risk involved, when really what we're talking about is betting your entire freedom and life and values, your persona, all of these things on something that you might have had a burden of proof that was nothing more than it's not necessarily impossible. So, on that... I agree. I would actually change one thing. It's not about necessarily the risk. It's about the consequences that follow from accepting uh, the, the burden, or at least trying to trying to prove the burden, right? What, what you're dealing with. I think if you look up risk and consequence in a thesaurus, they'll be together. <laughs> <Fair laughs> yeah. On that note, I got a couple right, other well, theists waiting, and, and uh, but we appreciate the call, Frank. Yeah. Good luck. Thanks. We have, uh, and this might be a first uh, for me in memory, but uh, Jeff's on the line, and Jeff, you're a Buddhist. Yeah, that's right. Cool. What do you want to talk about? Oh, just uh, converse a little bit. I uh, really don't want to get into a big argument, but I, I kind of feel... Well, you called uh, the wrong show. I'm sorry, I can't hear you. Oh, I'm sorry. Can you hear me now? Yeah. 
I, I was just making a joke. You said you didn't want to get into a big argument, and I said you called the wrong show. But uh, yeah, yeah, I know. It's like, why am I doing this? You know. But so I just, I just have a few comments to make. That that I kind of feel the religious people. Or, you know, I mean, as we know them, you know, monotheistic, you know, religion that, you know, dominate our society. Uh, really, really look at reality from a totally different perspective. And, uh, you know, what people have come to a materialist, atheist, you know, point of view, you know, define as reality, right? I'm a, I'm afraid I'm not following you, and there seems to be some audio issues. So I because we're running short on time, I, I, I'm just right. gonna I'm gonna suggest you either email us at tv at atheist community dot org or call us back another week. I apologize for the audio problems, but that wasn't particularly yeah, that was clear. Kind of echoey and a little drunky. Yeah. Uh, not not that he was drunk, but that it this the slur yeah. from the audio was that way. Anyway, uh, Bob in Blackwood, New Jersey. Thanks for waiting. I'm pretty sure you'll be our. I'm pretty sure you'll be our last caller for this week, Bob. Oh, okay. Cool. Thanks for having me on, guys. Sure. Sure. Um, yeah. Uh, today, you know, we're talking about a lot about Pascal's wagers, et cetera. Yeah. Um, so, I guess being a, a true theist, I guess for the past three years, um, I don't even like Pascal's wager. I think it's. It's just brutal. I look at it as that if there is a God, he wants us to choose to have that relationship. You know, wouldn't you agree? Isn't that what Pascal's wager is? Yeah. Well, I think it's, I think it was just more probability that he's throwing out there. Like, no, oh, I used to be no, out. no. Pascal's wager isn't about probability. It's about a risk assessment. It's about what, what, are, what do you lose? What do you gain? It's not about a probability. As a matter of fact, when Blaise Pascal, and this is, by the way, if you go to my YouTube channel, there's a whole detailed discussion on the original version. Blaise Pascal agreed with me that you cannot choose what you believe. You are either convinced or you're not convinced. His argument on behalf of Christian belief contrasted with atheism, and he understood that it excluded all other possibilities, and, and it also only addressed his particular view about Christianity, was that if you believe and you're right, you get heaven. And if you believe and you're wrong, you get there's nothing, there's no loss. And But if you disbelieve and you're wrong, you will spend eternity in hell. Uh, and if you disbelieve and you're correct, you haven't lost or gained anything. Um, he's wrong at every turn about what you lose and what you gain. Uh, there's countless problems with this, but Pascal also pointed out something that's even more nefarious. And that is, he understood you couldn't choose to believe. But he thought, based on his wager, that what you should then do, if you cannot believe, is to act as if you believe and hope that you delude yourself into belief, which is even worse than, than the Pascal's wager that is used frequently in today's world. Um, no, no, I agree with it. Um, I, I, just a, uh, another comment. So, you know, you were um, a Christian for like 20, 25 years. Yep. And uh, so I'm sure you had to look into other religions at one point or study them to see why they were false and maybe why you were true. Yep. Um, so from that kind of standpoint, if you had to, you know, 
let's say there is no, you know, I'm with you, there's no physical proof of a God, let's say. Um, if you had to put money on a sect or religion, Mormonism, would you put money on Christianity to outrank the other religions, or do you think they're all equal delusional? I, I wouldn't put money on any of them. I, I wouldn't put money on any of them, but if you were forcing me to make a bet, uh, Christianity wouldn't be the top pick. Um, I, I'd probably... The top pick would be some vague form of deism. Uh, the problem is, is that you can, by definition, never collect or lose that bet. Because deistic gods aren't aren't interventional. They're not. You're not active, and in, 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 so there's no way to ever confirm or disconfirm their existence. Uh, so basically, I'd just be putting money in a. You could you could have an accruing interest, and nobody would ever be able to collect on it. But no, I wouldn't put it on Christianity being true because uh, I don't, you know, the thing is that the more specific the claims are of a religion, uh, the less likely it is to survive inquiry. And the religions that are thriving now are the ones that have mechanisms built in to be as vague as possible, to be prone to interpretation and everything else. Um, there's as many different versions of Christianity as there are Christians sitting in a pew in a church. Uh, so... And I, I wouldn't bet necessarily on any of them being uh, likely to be correct. Yeah, I mean, I was interacting with two Christians on um, the Atheist Experience Facebook page um, earlier this week, and they had they were in complete disagreement with each other about what it takes to achieve salvation. You know, one said, "Well, you have free will," and so. It, it, Essentially, it's your choice to have a relationship with God. And the other one was saying, no, it's God's choice. You know, only he can, you know, decide to, you know, grant you salvation. I can tell and, you which one I think is more biblically correct. But the point is, yeah, they don't know. It's like, and it's like, why are you guys talking to me? You should be talking to each other. And get back to me when you come to a consensus on how this works. You know? I've had this plan. So we have this new phone system here, which is six lines, and I can actually lock all of them online. For example, I could set it so that you are on air and get another call in, and you and another caller could talk. And I'm waiting for the day when I have two theists who will clearly disagree on something, and I'm going to put the two of them on the air, and we're just going to sit back and listen. And when you sort out which one of you is correct, that's the one I'll actually engage with. <laughs> Well, no, I, I agree with you um, guys on that. I mean, so I'm, I'm a Christian theist, and I watch debates constantly on my own religion. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's easy to find for anybody on the particulars, et cetera, or Jesus is God or not God. So, yeah, I'm, I'm with you 100% on that. Um, but, you know, you know, in the last year, you know, I, I came up Roman Catholic, and if you asked me, you know, when I was younger, if I believed in Jesus, I would say sure. But I'm not necessarily sure I would just give the excuse, like, yeah, it's, it's my faith. It's my faith, and that's what I believe. And, and you know, if you believe in the Muslim, yeah, maybe we all lead to the same place. And, oh, see? You know, then you don't believe. Yeah. The, so, the, oh, yeah, yeah. so this doctrine, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't know how, and this is, this is I apologize, because this is former Christian Matt, not necessarily atheist Matt. I don't know how anybody can identify as Christian and say something like, well, maybe the Muslims, maybe we're all right. That is antithetical to all of the doctrine. You have basically removed the core of Christian doctrine and just kept the label. No, well, as a Catholic, we don't, um, we didn't, um, um, so, uh, you know, I just, did, you know, as a Catholic, I just go to all that kind of stuff, but, you know, as I get older, and I would call myself Catholic, but I didn't go to church or whatever, but yeah, I would, like, just 
considered that in my head, in my own head, right? I would justify, oh my God, you know, there's other people and they seem like good people and, and there is some good Muslims and I'm sure God's going to lead them to the right place because I didn't know my own. Why, why would you think that? So, so you basically you've chucked out, you've chucked out the Bible entirely. Yeah, yeah, I did. Okay. I did. And also, this is going to sound freaky too. When I was like looking into this stuff about three years ago, and this is so sad. I mean, I actually, I, I mean, like I know you see, you know, Jesus symbols on the cross. I just totally forgot about the whole resurrection. But not being a I swear to you, like miracles. I'm just totally, and I'm a smart guy. You know what I mean? I just totally forgot about religion. If I was like, if somebody was sick, I would say a prayer at night. Or whatever, but I was, um, you know, church was boring. You know, I mean, I'm church the same old, you know, priest doing this thing, you know, and you know, and I was looking at statues, you know, because it's cool being in the church, you know what I mean? It's like you know, each other statues and stuff, and hope and pray like bundle and move, and you know, give me convincing proof that you know that it is true. You know what I mean? Like I would do weird stuff as a kid, you know, in the pews and stuff. <laughs> but, so, uh, so I, I mean, because we're running, we're actually overtime, but. It, it, I know it may be a big question, but could you explain what it is that you believe about God in a nutshell and maybe give a why? Okay. Um, I hope to be real. Like, I had a little witnesses come to my house, and I was, as a Catholic, we were always told to see you later, don't come in. But I work with Jehovah's In the real world, I work with people, and they're nice people. You know what I mean? Just like any other religion. So they would come in. And I basically said, hey, listen, um, you know, don't spoon feed me. Let me look into it. I'd like to do my research first and have a foundation before anybody spoon feeds me on anything. So they would actually keep on coming for like five years. But the fact is, in my ignorance, my wife had to tell me, you guys have been coming here for five years? And I was like, really? And So, Bob, day, Bob, I don't want this call to go on for five years because we're overtime. I just, I was wondering, you know, you talked about what you did and, and, and kind of didn't believe. Um, yeah. But when I asked for the, the what and the why, I get a story about Jehovah's Witnesses talking to you for five years. Okay. I, I'm sorry. I, I guess, no, keep it short and sweet. I guess in the last three years, slowly, just like I guess I used slowly, you know, you know, convincing proofs that there wasn't God and now you're an atheist. It was a slow conversion of me sticking with it and believing that. The Bible is the authority. So, <laughs> and that's what I believe today. And, uh, and, and you know, it's, I do believe literally and all that stuff. And uh, it, it was nobody's spoon feeding. So, so you just said you just spoon said spoon that feet. you just said that you gradually came to believe that the Bible is an authority. Yeah. And and not five minutes ago, you just agreed that you had chucked out the entirety of the Bible for your new doctrine. Yeah, I'm confused. Uh, I, you're not the only one that's confused, but we're also completely out of time. So my apologies to uh, Joseph and Josiah and the others that are on hold. Feel free to call uh, back next week. I appreciate the call, Bob. Maybe spend a little more time getting a succinct view of what your doctrine is and why. And uh, give us a call back, or you can email tv at atheist-community.org. Uh, some of the folks are getting ready to go to dinner at Threadgill's. That's the end of this show. Thanks to Jen. Thanks to all the Thank folks you. out there on the other side of the glass. And we'll see you and next week. We're sorry that we're getting darker in here, but our lights are going out. Yeah, all the lights on the camera's dimmed. But we can't see what we look like, so we might Yeah, look it great. doesn't matter, so we're fine. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Russell Glasser, host of The Atheist Experience. 
You know, the Atheist Experience is made possible by volunteers and the generous support of viewers like you. If the promotion of positive atheist culture and separation of church and state are values that you hold, please consider contributing by becoming an ACA member or visiting our product page at EvolveFish.com under the Partner tab. Thank you. Comcast Business gives you the bandwidth you need to power all your devices. Get started with 200 megabit internet and voice for $99.99 per month. And for a limited time, we'll upgrade your speed to 300 megabits for no additional cost for the first year with a three-year agreement. Call 1-800-501-6000 today. Comcast Business, beyond fast. Offer 3120 restrictions apply not available in all areas. New business customers only limited to Comcast Business Internet, 200 megabits per second and one voice mobility line. Regular rates apply after first 12 months. Three-year agreement required. Early termination fee applies. Equipment taxes and fees extra subject to change. Monthly service charge increases by $10 without paperless billing and auto pay. How to show up with Coca-Cola energy. You're tired and you're thinking of canceling on your friends. Don't do it! Every time you cancel on a friend, a unicorn loses its horn and becomes a regular horse. Do you really want that on your conscience? Instead, grab an ice-cold can of Coca-Cola energy with delicious Coke taste and reinvigorating energy. Keep the unicorns alive! Show up every day with Coca-Cola energy. Energy you want, taste you love.